Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Men are haunted by the vastness of eternity. And so we ask ourselves, will our actions echo across the centuries? It's a great question, worthy of an entire episode of The Rest is History. But who said it? Napoleon? Abraham Lincoln? Winston Churchill? No, it was Sean Bean, playing Odysseus admittedly in the 2004 film Troy. Not the most obvious casting, I'd have thought. Anyway, Troy is the subject of our discussion today. And with me is the Brixton Achilles, Tom Holland. And after last week's discussion of 1981, this is a bit of an away fixture for me and a, a home match for Tom. <laughs> we're, on your, we're on your natural terrain, aren't we? Yes, we <laughs> yes. are. The fans are gathering in the stands. Um, so the, the, the peg for this is um, the all-conquering Leviathan that is Stephen Fry has a new book out on Troy, which tells you everything you need to know about the, the fascination with it. But a personal peg for me is that I'm currently reading my son, his bedtime reading is a children's version of the Iliad, um, and, which he is loving, actually. And, and I would add that I'm actually right in the middle of um, writing a sequel to uh, the Trojan War, which is a, a, wow. a history Troy for, two. for... Yeah, Troy two history for, uh, for, uh, of ancient Greece for children in which the gods continue to play lead roles. So you still get Zeus and Athena and everything. So coming to a bookshop uh, next summer, folks. So, the stars um, are aligned. The stars, the stars are, aligned. are aligned. Absolutely. So, uh, but um, before we do that, before we do that, let's uh, let's just read some um, uh, comments that we've had about uh, previous shows. And Jamie Kingston got in touch after last week's episode. Loving this podcast. That's very much the kind of feedback we like. It's already become a favourite of mine. Great. Um, in this episode, I can't remember which one. Oh, this is 1981, of course. In this episode, yeah, in this episode, we learned that Dominic hates weddings uh, and royal weddings. Well, actually, royal weddings in particular, isn't it? I don't like weddings. Oh, full stop. I'm, okay. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm okay. just a bit of a misery, you know. I'm a, Eeyore, as somebody uh, said on Twitter. Yes, okay. Well, uh, Not wrongly. Um, uh, we learned that uh, Tom wasn't born with a cricket bat in his hand. Again, that's true. Um, and Ian Botham is actually a Victorian. Is he a Victorian or is he more, he's more, I think he's more 18th century. Uh, yes, I guess. Uh, yes, probably. Yeah, he's kind of breeches rather than yes, you know, trousers. Yes, yeah. And then he's he's also, of course, a very nineteen eighties, which was the discussion of yeah. last week's podcast. Uh, so Stuart Scott said, "I'd take nineteen eighty one over twenty twenty at the drop of a hat." I guess probably quite a lot of people would agree with that, though perhaps not in Toxteth. Um, um, t- I, or indeed in Brixton, where I live. Um, one of the principal characters of 1981 was, of course, a Margaret Thatcher, uh, who we described as highly divisive. I mean, I think that's that's kind of written into the... That's the rule, isn't it? You can't mention yeah. Margaret Thatcher without saying highly divisive. Controversial Prime Minister. Um, and uh, this prompted an interesting question from someone who calls himself or herself or itself wrecked on Twitter. Um, and he, she or it asks... Can you name the last undivisive prime minister? That's a good question. I mean, prime ministers are divisive by, the, by their very nature, aren't they? Um, yes, because to, to govern is to choose um, and to choose between two different camps. But I suppose some... So there are prime ministers whose stock and trade is to be emollient, aren't there? David Cameron, let's say, Tony Blair before Iraq. Um, 
Was Harold Wilson that divisive? Was Jim Callaghan? I'm not, I'm not convinced they were, really. And none of the 50s prime ministers were particularly divisive. I suppose what's distinctive about Mrs Thatcher is that um, being divisive was part of her self-image, that she, she yeah. kind of revelled in it, whereas most prime ministers tend not to. Exactly. If she thought if you were not being divisive, that showed you weren't, you weren't, you had no guts, you weren't in the arena. Tories talk about being one nation conservatives, don't they? Um, they do. Which basically... And, when, and they... And they always, and they bash Labour politicians, they say they're class warriors, they're fermenting class war and all this kind of thing. So they sort of, part of the Tory message is often to say there is no division, actually, and we should all just be one happy family. And vote um, Tory. Yeah, sort of Stanley Baldwin. <laughs> yes, yeah. Okay, well, that's, that's, I knew you'd have a good answer for that. Um, anyway, let's, I, I think that's enough of modern history. Can we get to a far more interesting <laughs> topic? <laughs> Namely, the Bronze Age. <laughs> Great. Yes. So um, looking at the publicity for Stephen Fry's new book, there's one line in particular, enter the world of Troy and the most legendary story ever told. Well, is it the most legendary story ever told? I suppose it is, Tom Holland. That's quite a claim, isn't it? But tell us, okay, so for the modernists among us, tell us in no more than about 40 words, <laughs> the entire story of the Trojan War. Okay, the, the world's most beautiful woman, the daughter of Zeus, Helen, um, is abducted by a Trojan prince called Paris to the city of Troy. All the Greeks have sworn an oath that um, if Helen gets stolen by anyone, they will go and get her back. So the heroes of Greece are kind of duty bound to sail to Troy. They camp in front of uh, the walls of Troy for 10 years. Um, terrible and heroic deeds are done. Uh, great heroes fight, great heroes die. At the end, um, the only way that the Greeks can get into Troy is to uh, play a trick. Um, they build a huge wooden horse. They leave it supposedly as an offering to Poseidon, the god of the sea. In fact, the Greeks have hidden their best warriors inside the belly of the horse. The Trojans rather stupidly take the horse inside Troy. The Greeks come out. They burn Troy. They all go home. Great. Wow, Tom, you're very good at these little summaries, I think. Thank if you. the history doesn't work out, you, know, you can always... <laughs> Um, so this is the question, isn't it? Did it actually happen? And give us a year, pin yourself down to a year or at least a century. Well, Greek historians gave various dates and they would range by, by our dating system for kind of um, 1250 to 1150 BC. Um, so yeah, that's the, that, 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 that's the end of the Bronze Age. Um, and, the, the, and the huge question is, when the Greeks wrote about the Trojan War, and I suppose specifically Homer, who is who, who's the great poet, who um, every, everybody else who writes about the Trojan War stands in his shadow. Were they drawing on authentic memories of something that actually happened? And there have been various opinions of, uh, about that over the course of time. The Greeks and the Romans were, were fairly convinced that it had happened. They gave various accounts of it, various versions of it. There was no kind of definitive version, although Homer was kind of as close to as definitive as they got. By the 18th, by the beginning of the 19th century, uh, people were coming to assume that it was a fairy tale, that it had no yeah. roots in, in uh, fact at all. And then the um, German businessman turned archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann famously decided that he was going to prove it had happened. And using Homer, he went to um, what's now kind of the the, the north of Turkey. Yeah, so where are we? Where Let me interrupt you, Tom. Where are we exactly? Is, is this a sort of roundabout Gallipoli, am I right? Yeah, so it's, it, it, it's, it's by Gallipoli. So 
you think of the Aegean separating Greece and what's now Turkey. Um, you think of uh, the, the narrow strip of water that um, separates Europe from Asia and leads into the Black Sea. Troy commands the, the, the entrance to those straits. So you can see that it would, you know, it, it's, it's strategically significant. Schumann yeah. goes there, he digs it up, supposedly. I mean, and when we say dig it up, I mean, he really digs it up. He digs a massive great trench and demolishes vast swathes of the archaeology <laughs> and discovers what he claims to have been Homer's Troy. And I guess the, the, the consensus of archaeologists now would be that, that, that this is the site. It's a hill called Hisselik. Uh, that this yeah. probably was Troy. And and we know that this is where the, the Greeks and the Romans thought that the battle had been fought because um, in the wake of Alexander's conquest, a town grows up there, which is a kind of homage to uh, to the original Troy. Well, they definitely thought it happened, didn't they? Because I've just been writing a children's book about Alexander the Great and there's a great moment in it when um, they pitch up the Macedonians, they're invading Persia, and Alexander makes a special trip to Troy, to what he thinks is the tomb of Achilles. And he, he does what we all do when we visit the graves of our ancestors. He takes all his clothes off and anoints <laughs> himself in oil yes. and then runs round and round the tomb. Yeah, it's, it's classic behaviour on a Turkish trip. We've all done it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and before that and before that, when so Alexander says that he is um invading Asia um to get revenge for the Persians who had invaded Greece um, back in uh, 490 and 480 BC. And that had been led by Xerxes, the, the, the king of Persia. And Xerxes, when he led his invasion, he went to the site of Troy and paid his respects to the heroes. I mean, this was kind of good PR. Um, yeah. And, and this sense that um, the Trojan War is a kind of decisive moment in an ongoing war between East and West, between Asia and Europe is very much a theme that the Greeks pick up on. And it's elaborated by Herodotus, who is the first great um, historian. Um, translated by me, folks, again, rush out and oh, buy. If you haven't, yeah, just getting that, slipping that one in. Quality um, plug. So, so Herodotus ra- rationalises um, the, uh, the abduction of Helen as basically being something not very important. And his take is that the Greeks massively overreact. I mean, Herodotus basically right. says, we've all stolen a princess or two. I mean, it's ridiculous, <laughs> it's ridiculous to overreact. So it's almost like a bit sort of a false flag operation or something. Uh, I, th- I, think, I think Herodotus, you know, he, he begins his history. So this is the first passage of prose of any work of history ever written. And it's about how yeah. people in Asia and people in Greece are constantly stealing each other's princesses. And, Herodotus and he is, really thought this happened. Yeah, he thinks it happened. He, he thinks it happened. And also, interestingly, Thucydides, who is the, the next great um, historian who fo- follows after Herodotus, who's in- famously sceptical, um, he also thinks it happens. But he provides the kind of rationalist perspective on it. And he says that uh, he doesn't think that it was about Helen at all. He thinks that it was about, um, it was about uh, wealth. And that Agamemnon, yeah. who is the, um, the, 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 the the leading king, the king of Mycenae, the richest city, uh, and who is kind of commander in chief at Troy, that he was so powerful that he could get all the various Greek kings together and lead a, a common expedition. Um, and Thucydides thinks that this is all about kind of controlling trade routes and stuff. 
Oh my God, he's a Marxist. He's a, he thinks it's all about the search for profit. He's 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 very he's he's a kind of very his perspective is very much that of um, a strategist, someone who doesn't have much place for fantastical tales of abducted princesses. Yeah. Um, and I guess that that's that's probably the perspective that um, that many modern historians would have as well. That this is this this is a war that's happening in the context of great power politics and and attempts to control trade routes and things like that. It's not about uh, beautiful princesses being abducted. Of course. So the temptation is to see it as Europe versus Asia, isn't it? But my sense is that that would be completely wrong because isn't this just generally the Greek-speaking world? Isn't Troy... So, I mean, what, was, what would Troy, Troy have been? Would it have been a Greek-speaking city, a Hittite city? So the Hittites are the people in Anatolia, aren't they? Right. I mean, so, what is it? Yeah, so, so the Hittites are a, a key part of trying to understand what the actual Trojan War might have been. And the Hittites um, rule an empire across what's now Turkey, Anatolia. Um, and at the beginning of the 20th century, a kind of cache of royal correspondence was found. And so over the course of the 20th century, these have been deciphered. And there are a couple of letters that cast potential light on the Trojan War. So um, one of them mentions uh, a town called Willusa. And Sounds Will- just like Troy. <laughs> well, well, but another name for Troy was Ilium. So okay. you can see that there's potentially a kind of bleed there from Willusa perhaps to Ilium. And what's also interesting is that the, the king of Willusa is a man called Alexandu. And an alternative name for Paris, the prince who abducts Helen, is Alexander. So, oh, nice. So, you know, maybe maybe there's a mesh there. Um, and the other letter is a letter addressed to um, the king of a land called Ahiwawa. And Gosh, you said that very nicely. My Hittite is, is fluent. <laughs> and Ahiwawa <laughs> sounds, again, a bit like Achaea. And Achaeans is what Homer, writing um, in perhaps the second half of, of the 8th century BC, calls the Greeks. So perhaps the Achaeans, the Achaeoi, which Homer is using, is a trace element of Akiwawa. But the, the key thing about this is that nobody really would care about this very obscure kind of Bronze Age diplomacy, war, whatever, were it not for the fact that Homer had written this amazing poetry. Yeah. And that that poetry has then kind of descended down through the centuries. So your, your son, you know, you're reading it to your son... Yeah, what what is it about the Trojan War? Presumably, I mean, he's not interested in uh, you know trade routes through the Hellespont. No, he, he loves the Hittites. He's really into the Hittites. <laughs> no, you're right. I think it's the what is it? Um, that's a very good question. I think, I mean, obviously with the the Iliad, it's the personalities, isn't it? And it's the and it's the slightly unexpected. I mean, to a modern sensibility, it's a very unexpected story. So Achilles, their great hero, spends half the time sulking in his tent and um, refusing to come out. There's a sort of incongruity. Um, there's this odd disconnect between the, the sort of heroic status of the characters, and often they're quite, to, to modernise, Weasley behaviour, which I think is intriguing. Yeah, I, I, I mean, also, I mean, an interesting thing about it is that um, if, you, if you look at the Iliad, um, which is Homer's account of the Trojan War, there's not actually very much about the Trojan War there. It's a very short space of time. So lots of the most famous things, so like the Trojan horse. The Trojan horse isn't in the, it's not in the Iliad. And the Trojan horse is a great story, isn't it? I mean, the Trojan horse is this, I mean, clearly this sort of, uh, this, 
you know, this this mythic sort of this dissection of, of hubris, this moment of great craftiness, this sort of plot by the Greeks, this sort of heist, effectively, yeah. that, well, that comes off. Well, you see, I, I mean, it always seems to me a ridiculous plot. I, you're, you're, you're Trojans. You've been suffering a, a war for a siege for 10 years. The Greeks years. go, and there's a huge great horse. You're going to have a bit of suspicion, aren't you? Are you? I mean, you know, there's actually a wooden horse at the site of ancient Troy. So the Turkish authorities have built a, a wooden horse, and it's it's... It sits there outside their site. It doesn't look great, to be honest. It's not terribly impressive. How, how many? How many do you think it would fit in? Seven. I don't know. <laughs> ten. <laughs> that would be enough, wouldn't it? But you know, they, they just needed to open the gates, right? They did. They don't need to storm the whole city. Don't they just get in and open the gates? Isn't that how it works? Yeah, they, they open the gates, but there are enough of them to start the slaughtering and the pillaging. I mean, you wouldn't do that with seven people, would you? No, you, you need more than that. It's got to be quite yeah. a big horse. Um, listen. Um, we are let's let's take some questions because questions about the Trojan War have a very very long pedigree. The Emperor Tiberius, um, when he was uh, retired on um, Capri, used to hold the equivalent of a pub quiz um, for his about guests. the Trojan War. Yeah, about, and he would ask some kind of difficult questions like um, uh, so Achilles, the great hero, when he was a boy, uh, was disguised as a girl, and Tiberius would say, um, "What what name did Achilles have as a girl?" And wow. Odysseus, the uh, the cunning hero who um, comes up with the idea of the Trojan War. Uh, he has a very, very long voyage back home uh, and he sails past um, sinister creatures called the Sirens who sing beautifully and then devour the sailors yeah. who are lured to their island. And Tiberius wanted to know what the song was that the Sirens sang. Wow. Um, and he would expect people to know this. And he, would they know it? Well, he would. And um, there was one of his guests who cheated and um, got hold of the questions before they were asked. So what do you think Tiberius did to him? Threw him off the rock. Had him killed. Don't, <laughs> don't right. cheat if you go to a pub quiz run by a Caesar. Anyway, let's come back to at the questions that we've been asked. Um, but Tom, I think we should take a break first. Um, OK, well, listen, in- before we take the break, I'm going to read you Carl Johans or Johans question. And we okay. can have a, you can have a ponder because I'm going to put you have to answer this. What war or event, he asks, comes closest to being of similar significance to the modern West as Troy was to the Greeks? Good question. Let's have a break. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. 
I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back, everybody, to The Rest is History. So just before the break, uh, Tom asked me Carl Johan's question, which is what war comes close to being of similar significance to the modern West as Troy was to the Greeks? So it seems to me, Tom, that the obvious answer to that is, I mean, the, 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 the blatantly obvious answer is World War II. I mean, World War II is the event that sort of lingers in the Western psyche as the ultimate symbol of man's humanity to man. It's the ultimate morality tale. We structure our the way we think about the world around the evil of the Nazis, the heroism um, of standing up to them, the the dangers of appeasement, all that kind of stuff. Don't you think that the Second World War is basically our yeah, Trojan think, War, our mythic story? I think I think on, on the level of myth, but I think there's also a seasoning of the First World War because the, the yeah, thing about the Trojan too. War is that it's pointless. So if right. you think of the, 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 the myth of the First World War is that it's, you know, what was it all for? It was all fought in vain. Yeah. People slaughtering each mud, other. Blood and mud. poppycock. That's, that's, that's pretty much what the Trojan War is. I mean, it... It's ruinous and it's destructive and nothing really comes of it. But hold on, the, the Greeks didn't think about it that way, didn't they? Didn't they find it heroic and inspiring? I mean, when Alexander runs, runs around the tomb of Achilles naked, he's not thinking, um, you know, he's not thinking, oh, this was a complete waste of time and this is the sort of Douglas Haig of the, of the Bronze Age. Well, Achilles becomes a great hero because he chooses a short life um, and eternal fame over a long life and obscurity. But oh, So he's like Rupert Brooke or something. Yeah, but in the sequel... The Odyssey. We meet the ghost of Achilles in the underworld, and he says it's terrible. I oh, made, really? I, you know, I, 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 I made a terrible mistake. I'd much rather be a kind of slave working the land than uh, than be a king in the underworld. And oh, I really? Think that, yeah, That's and I think you know, and, and if you look at um, the Greek tragedians, the Athenian tragedians, and um, Aeschylus, one of them said that um, you know basically Greek tragedy is just kind of cuts from the great feast of Homer. They are incredibly bleak. The, the, the tragic world, the way in which terrible things happen for, for and don't really serve a purpose, um, is absolutely a kind of riff on the, the idea of the Trojan War as being kind of agonisingly pointless. And yeah. I, I think I think that you know if you so if you fuse the First World War with the Second World War, the mix of that would give you something approximating it. Now the, the producer has been pestering me with questions. Um, while you've been talking not that he wasn't listening to you tom but he's just been texting me with questions about helen of troy was this just a fight about a beautiful woman tell us about the woman all this kind of stuff so yes it's that's interesting isn't it that it's all about a woman i mean there aren't many real wars that are either generated by women or that have women at their sort of absolute center as this does well i think again to to go back to herodotus the History begins with an account of different people raping each other, raping each other's women. And, and mm. I, I think there is a kind of, to a disturbing degree, there is a sense that the history of war is also the history of rape. So yeah. to that extent, there is a kind of, you know, a, a dark truth to the story of, of Helen's abduction. But, 
you know, in the kind of the more romantic sense of it, um, we do actually have a, a, a very good question from Julian Lennox, who says, speaking of Helen, who are other historically beautiful people, specifically people whose beauty had historical significance, as in it changed the course of history? So, you know, do we do we have other women whose beauty was such that it changed the course of history? What do you think? I think that's a I think that's a great question. He actually said people, Tommy, didn't say women. Yeah, he did. I'm you, being sexist. You've revealed there. Yes, your yes, own I mean, yes, I'm shocking. Being there. Yes, that's the that's the male gaze in action. Isn't yes, it? it is. This is a terrible moment. I think you, your cancellation is surely only moments away. Um, so I don't, it's an interesting one. Is it women or is it sexiness? Because sexiness obviously does matter. And the example I always think of is Anne Boleyn. Oh, good so, one. Yes. So the yes. funny thing about Anne Boleyn is she's not conventionally attractive. People at the time, all these sort of ambassadors at the Tudor court would write back and they would say, oh, she's sallow-faced, she's, she's sort of vulpine, you know, she's not attractive. She had 11 fingers, didn't she? But she, well, there's this claim about the finger as well. I think we should probably, um, yeah, gloss over that. Was that but, the key? Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe she was able to put these this extra finger to very potent use. Who knows? Dominic. Um, so, um, so, so Anne Boleyn has this hold over Henry VIII, clearly, and he's obsessed with her. And, you know, had it not been for that, and the, by the fact that she was, you know, interested in the kind of new evangelical ideas, the new kind of ideas critical of the Catholic Church, it is perfectly plausible that England... You know, there would have been a Protestant movement, but the king would have fought it off and that England would have remained a Catholic country, as France did. So you could, you can say with somebody like Anne Boleyn, one individual, one individual's sexual allure does hold the key to a, a massive structural cultural change. So she's the face that launched a thousand monasteries being dissolved. A thousand Bibles. A yeah. thousand Bibles. <laughs> uh, what about Cleopatra? Cleopatra is not very... Well, yes. I mean, Cleopatra is, of course, is is always presumed to have been incredibly beautiful. Um, but not beautiful. And, and a great right? Well, if you look at her coins, she doesn't look particularly beautiful. And I think that 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 sex wasn't necessarily what she was offering uh, the men she slept with, because basically we only know that she slept with two men, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony, and both yeah. of those men happened to be the most powerful. <laughs> men in the Mediterranean at the time. So I think yeah. we can, you know, and, and, and even when Antony dies, Cleopatra then makes a pitch at, at Octavian, who will, the future Augustus. So, so if Melania Trump moves on to Joe Biden, yeah. we'll know that she wasn't interested in Donald for his looks. Yes, I think that that would, that would be a, a reasonable, reasonable presumption. But of course, in, in the way that Cleopatra is, is portrayed as a kind of fatal seductress, there is something there of, of Helen, the idea that... Um, the, the, the love of a beautiful woman can be destructive for heroes and indeed for cities. Yeah. So, yeah, that's absolutely part of it. Now, do we have... Um, uh, we have lots more questions, don't we? Give, give me another question. Uh, what about Josh Harold Wilson? I wonder if there's any relations to... But oh. Josh Harold Wilson says, <laughs> is, film, is film a useful tool for exploring history or does it do more damage than good? Well, that's very um, topical with The Crown, isn't it? Um, so the film of Troy, you've seen the film of Troy, the Brad Pitt film? It's the worst film about the ancient world ever made. That's a big claim. Worse than Cleopatra? Uh, Cleopatra's great. Oh, it's very long, though. Very, very boring, as I remember. No, no, no. no. Three, um, Troy is, is the worst film ever made because it gets rid of the gods and therefore it gets rid of everything that makes Homer interesting because without the gods, it becomes quite dull. 
And more than that, what they're trying to do with Troy is to make it um, historically grounded. And the whole point yeah. is that that whatever you may think about the kind of the the, the tiny acorn of fact that gives rise to the great oak of, of the Trojan myth, it didn't happen. It didn't happen as Homer portrays it. There was no Achilles, yeah. there was no Helen, there was no Trojan horse. So it's all myth. So the very attempt to try and portray it as it did is, is a spectacular waste of energy and effort. It's, it's truly terrible. But does it do any, uh, any harm? I don't think so. I don't think it does any damage. Probably, well... I suppose you can argue that films as propaganda do harm, don't they? I mean, they can they enter into the collective imagination of people, and if if what they are promoting is you know difference, hatred, all this sort of stuff. Well, and, an interesting counterpoint would be Three Hundred, which is also um, a film about uh, ancient Greece and tells the story of the, the Spartans at Thermopylae. Um, yeah, and that I think is a, a, a brilliant portrayal of the ancient world because it very accurately portrays the Spartans as proto Nazis, as proto fascists, which is basically what they were the spartans were a huge inspiration to the nazis and one of the things that's that's unsettling about 300 is that um it doesn't serve up the the kind of morality that we expect the strong are strong the weak are weak and the weak are contemptible for being weak and i, I it's, it's mm. very unsettling but i think also very very accurate but there's a reason you know 300 has become very popular with um the kind of more right-wing fringes Right. For that reason, so uh, it could be argued that that that's done damage. Um, that is interesting, isn't it? Let's talk a bit about since you've we've got onto three hundred and all this stuff about how we see the Trojan War, how modern societies have seen the Trojans. So something that's always fascinated me is the fact that um, Geoffrey of Monmouth and sort of medieval you know, um, British sort of English and Welsh writers were fascinated by this idea that we are descended from the Trojans. There was a fellow called Brutus who was a, he was related to Aeneas who supposedly founded Rome and that Brutus basically sails across the sea with a load of Trojan refugees and founds uh, Britannia, which is named after him. And he separates his kingdom into three parts, England, Scotland and Wales, which he gives to his three sons. And he founds a city called New Troy, which becomes London and all this sort of stuff. What's all that about? And the question that puzzles me is why would you empathise with the Trojans who are losers rather than the Greeks who are the winners? Because the Trojans are ultimately the winners. Because Aeneas, who you mentioned, who is um, the son of Aphrodite, cousin of of, um, the princes of Troy, he escapes Troy Supposedly, he he comes to Italy um, and his descendants found Rome. So the Romans identify themselves with the Trojans. So if you identify yourself with the Trojans, you're also identifying yourself with the Romans. So but why did the Romans do it, though? Why did the Romans? Is it because the Greeks were their rivals and they needed a sort of alternative origin story? They couldn't just take a Greek origin story. Because the Trojan War and Homer, you know, Homer is, is, is the prestige poet. And you want a bit of it. And if you can identify yourself with that story, then you're kind of joining in with it. And also it provides a rationale for the, for the Romans to go and conquer Greece. Right. Because they can say that they're taking vengeance for the, for the Trojans. And that's something that, um, that uh, Mehmet II, the, um, the, the Ottoman who captures Constantinople, he makes great play with this as well. He's saying that um, he is uh, ruling as the heir of the Trojans that um, by capturing Constantinople, he's taking vengeance for the sack of Troy. And do any modern Turks think this? Does, I don't uh, think so. Erd- no. Does Erdogan <laughs> think he's the no, heir of Achilles? No. I think, or I mean, the I heir think, of, sorry, the heir of Hector? Um, Mehmet II, had a, his, his mother was Greek, so he, he was kind of plugged into that 
culture. He was he was aware of it. I mean, it's, obviously, it's much more of a, a, a European thing. But in the in the wake of the the collapse of of the Roman Empire in early medieval Europe, it's a way for um, people as they start to get a sense of their own identity. They look around and and by plugging yourself into um, Greek mythology, Roman history. Um, you're giving yourself a kind of real sense of prestige. Yeah. And, to, and to say that you're descended from the Trojans, I mean, that you know, kind of multiplies it. And the great thing about um, about Britannia and Brutus coming to, to, to Britain is that um, Britain was supposedly a land of giants. And I, I saw in the paper... Still is. I saw in the paper today that, that Boris Johnson was saying that he's now committed to having a cabinet of giants. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so Brutus supposedly fights um, uh, two two giants called Gog and Magog, and it would it would be great to see them in the cabinet. Yeah, in place of Gavin Williamson or somebody. You don't think he's a Trojan figure? Well, I think Gog as Secretary of State for Education would be yeah. a lot more fun. But, but it's a funny thing, isn't it? How um, this this question about who you empathise with? So. When I'm reading, it, when I was reading it to my son the other night, I said, "Who do you, you know? Who do you want to win? Who do you?" And he knows the Trojans lose because kind of everybody seems to just know that they lose. Um, and he said, "Oh, well, I really like the Trojans. I like Hector. I know it doesn't end well for him." But I, and I said, "That's funny because I liked Hector when I was, you know, eight. I he was, and I wonder whether we think differently than our predecessors might have done because we are programmed. This is." You know, this is a gift to you with your Christianity. <laughs> Whether we are programmed to to cheer for the underdog, we know the Trojans lose, so we kind of, you know, we think they they they're the good guys. And the Greeks who behave so badly, squabbling about slave girls and crying and behaving in this sort of ludicrous, sort of whingy, snowflakey way, who empathises with them now? Well, Achilles is is the great hero. Uh, he is, you could say, hungry like the wolf. Very good, oh, Tom. That's <laughs> so we 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 pledge that we get a, a new romantic lyric in every week, and they're back of the net. There, I like. How did the talent of the table work out that one? <laughs> so Achilles, Achilles is the, the the great hero, and he's a great hero because he's basically the best at killing people, um, and that does seem frightening to us. I think. I mean, Achilles is a frightening figure, but you're right. You know, you you mentioned Alexander. Alexander completely models himself on on Achilles. Um, and Alexander kills a lot of people as well. And yeah. I think you're right. I think it is essentially... He's got essentially, a view to a kill, Tom. He's got a view to a kill. <laughs> I, think, I think that our sensibilities are incredibly Christian now. And so we are kind of programmed to uh, identify with those who suffer, um, those who, who are the victims, those who become the slaves rather than those who do the slaving. But the initial consumers of the of the of the Iliad, the, the people who listen to the poets tell and retell these stories, they presumably wouldn't have thought that. They'd have just thought these people are losers. Therefore, you know, they got what was coming to them. Uh, some did, but but some didn't. So again, this is a massive theme in in Greek tragedy: is the suffering of the losers. And in a way, the kind of you know, the, one of the, the bleakest works of literature ever written is Euripides' Trojan Women, which he's writing against the backdrop of the Peloponnesian War, the great war between Athens and Sparta, which will actually end with the, with, with the, the defeat of Athens. But the Athenians are sacking a lot of cities as the Trojans do. And Euripides gives this portrayal of the, the queens and the princesses of Troy being rounded up after the sack of the city, about to be led off into slavery. And it's a devastating portrait of what it means to be a victim in a war. And the power of it is precisely that the 
there's that there's that there is no real kind of redemptive quality to it um the the key thing that you get from christianity is the, the idea that there is a redemptive quality in in suffering um so if you counterpoint the sack of troy in greek myth yeah. to the sack of jerusalem in the old testament it you know it's it's terrible it's devastating but the conviction that the, the the Jews hold to is that ultimately it's expressive of God's power. And so therefore it is, you know, there is a purpose to it. What you get in Euripides is absolutely bled of any sense of that. This is just, this is just, you know, terrible stuff Pointless. happens. Yeah. And so, and so it was that kind of Euripidean take was resurrected an awful lot during the, um, uh, the, the, the Gulf War and the aftermath. So it was almost impossible to go to a theatre and not see a Greek tragedy in which um, mm. the, the Greeks were the, you know, the, the coalition forces. and Yeah. Uh, well, as is traditional, um, we end the podcast with a 10-minute lecture from Tom about uh, Christianity's, um, how it's changed the modern world and how everybody should go and buy his book, which I'm sure you already have. Um, I think we've pretty much run out of time, Tom. Um, but I think there's enough in this for us to come back to Troy and the Trojan War later on in the in the series depending on how long the series runs because there's tons of questions that we actually didn't get to and i am so sorry to all those people uh but we will get to your question one day possibly um so we'll be back next week with more meanderings down the lanes of history please subscribe rate and review but obviously only if you like us uh, it does make all the difference and please do get in touch with us on twitter we are at the rest history so no is um, or you can also use at Holland underscore Tom or at DC Sandbrook. And that's it. Goodbye for now. Thanks for listening. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hold up. 